0: at that, but I'm, I'm happy to provide some support. I indicated I'm not a particular student of prophecy, but um, I'll do my best to support you. So, aware of my responsibility and this theme of anticipation, I have been regularly aware for two months of this particular Sunday. It's consistently been on my mind, sort of in the background of my thinking. I'm always aware that this Sunday will come, and I'm to speak on anticipation. So I've been alert to life's movements involving anticipation around me. I've been praying, preparing. I've had a heightened awareness and been alert to take note of what God is doing around me. That's what happens as you anticipate. As we anticipate, there's likely an increase in our praying and our preparing And there's a heightening in our awareness of what's going on around me. I've thought of anticipation and hope as it relates to marriage vows. The anticipation you have when you say, I do. And you've taken this person to be your partner for life. And how you're anticipating your dream is about to come true for the rest of your life. Every day. You anticipate just how good life is going to be once you're married. So your dreams, your hopes, your expectations for future life. I've thought about people who have conceived and are now found to be pregnant. And the anticipation they have associated with a child being formed in their womb. And I've thought about those who've experienced miscarriage, as did we. Or premature births or the birth of a baby that's not entirely healthy according to normal standards. I thought about uh, an Army Reserve job that had opened in Pennsylvania while I was living in Lexington that I was most certainly to be given because I was the most senior applicant and I had the strongest resume, just speaking the facts based on those who were applying for the job. I had the highest level of military education among those who were applying. And according to the Army's system, and I mean the Army always works according to its system, I was most assured of getting the job. And I didn't. What Army was I in? That's right. First of all, let me take note. That's the first time I've ever heard Norman speak. (laughs) Hallelujah! (laughs) This is great. I had not anticipated that, Norman. Yeah, well, I was in the United States Army, but yeah, that's why it was supposed to happen according to all the prerequisites, and it didn't. So I anticipated, and I hoped, and I felt very assured only to find out that it didn't come my way. It wasn't to be mine. I thought of the expectations and hopes and the anticipated outcomes, follow with me, of the 2022 midterm elections our most recent experience for many, a promised almost certain outcome for a major red tsunami. Right? This is how it had been presented by way of at least some media and hesitantly by other media to suggest it was going to be a dark day for blue. Um, But in fact... If we put our hope and our expectation in that particular news, and some may have in this group, then shock and disappointment for many was based on the fact that it was unreliable and empty, inaccurate promises. Suggesting that if we're going to be in anticipation, and if that anticipation is based on a hope that we want to ensure that our hope is properly founded in truth. Our anticipation birthed out of our hope and that our hope should be founded in truth. Advent puts us in the habit of watching and waiting, which according to one author, is a helpful practice because Christians still live in a state of anticipation we are waiting for Christ's return. By looking back at his first advent, we prepare ourselves to live in joyful expectation of his second advent. So by way of the first advent, probably many, maybe not all, are aware of the fact that there is an intertestamental period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. From the time of Malachi, the last writing of the Old Testament, about 400 B.C., until the preaching of John the Baptist, A.D. 25, there was no prophetic word from God recorded. This period of time is referred to as the 400 silent years. That's a number of lifetimes, isn't it? 400 years where God did not speak by way of a prophet that was recorded. While there was no significant recorded word from God, a great deal was happening in Israel's history leading up to the advent of Christ. Coming into this time, and then for the first hundred years, the Jews were under Persian rule, during which time they were allowed to practice their religion as their temple was being rebuilt. Their ruler, Darius of Persia, would then be conquered by Alexander the Great, and the Greek culture would then infiltrate Israel and Jewish life. The Old Testament would be translated from Hebrew into Greek and referred to as the Septuagint. After Alexander's death, other successors ruled who were more contrary to Jewish religious freedom. The temple was desecrated. A pagan altar was installed. The rightful line of the priesthood was overthrown. This would eventually result in an uprising led by Judas Maccabeus and the Hasmoneans in a resistance against Antioch so that the temple was restored for Jewish worship and the rightful priesthood reestablished. So in the latter part of that 400 years in 63 BC, the closing years of that period, Rome conquered Israel and the Caesars began to reign. The effect of these years in Jewish history was to create a mixed Judea, consisting of Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures. It was in this period of time that the Pharisees and Sadducees emerged. Pharisees being that religious body that added to the Mosaic law their view of oral tradition and religious laws that eventually dominated and subjugated God's laws. And the Sadducees were the aristocratic wealthy members of the society who uh, yielded their power through the Sanhedrin And they rejected all but the Mosaic Law, and they refused the resurrection, aligning themselves with the Greeks. Now, all this is to say that God had set the stage during the 400 silent years for the advent of the Messiah. Jews and pagans alike had become dissatisfied with religion. Jews were despondent, conquered, oppressed, and polluted. Quote, hope was running low and faith even lower. They were convinced that now the only thing that could save them and their faith was the appearance of the Messiah, end of quote. God was now ready for the advent of his Christ. Hope came for Jews and Gentiles alike, for the entire world. Christ's fulfillment of prophecy was anticipated and it was longed for. While largely misunderstood, there were some who sincerely awaited his coming. But to what end? For what purpose was he to come? Why had they understood this correctly? The most educated, the most knowledgeable and learned regarding the law and the prophets were the least apt to recognize him at his coming. Those who had studied and were knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures and all the prophecies tended to be the least likely to embrace the arrival of God's Christ. The curtain behind which the mystery was concealed was being pulled back ever so slightly. The heavens were beginning to be rolled back as a scroll to provide a glimpse, a shining star. An angelic heavenly host in a profoundly convincing glory gave declaration to his prophesied arrival. And a select few took note of the joyful announcement. It would require sign after sign, wonder upon wonder, miracle giving way to miracle to undergird and be made known through the expressions of love, forgiveness, acceptance, deliverance, words of truth, judgment, promise spoken with authority. It would necessitate his being apprehended, accused, betrayed, ridiculed, mocked, rejected, stripped, beaten, scourged, bloodied, abandoned, forsaken, and ultimately dying. It culminated in burial behind a stone in a tomb darkened with death. And resurrection followed by convincing, overwhelmingly compelling after-death appearances before the way, the truth, the life, the prophesied, promised Messiah would be recognized, accepted, and believed in. Well beyond prophetic word. It took a lot of convincing to connect prophecy to their present reality and the arrival of Christ. Prophecies and promises precisely fulfilled, though largely misunderstood by most, these prophecies would testify to God's having fulfilled his promise of a Messiah, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who came to set his people free. These and a number of other scriptures are cited by theologians as prophecies filled in Christ's coming. Others spoke of his life, death, resurrection. My sense is that it's much easier to connect the actual events back to the prophecy and see it fulfilled than to have had an accurate understanding of what would happen based on what was foretold. Isn't that the truth? By way of example, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will make you a sign, and the virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. That prophetic line appears clothed and surrounded by other scriptures that cause it to be nearly hidden to the observer coming from the back toward the front. Much more easily seen now by us having had this experience in our history to look back and say, oh, it's so clear. Or this scripture from Isaiah who spoke 700 years before the Christ. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And even if you read that Old Testament prophecy, surrounded by so many other aspects of writing, would you have begun to understand or cling to that as a future hope in anticipation of a day, and a person, and a Christ. Isaiah 11, again, 700 years before the Christ. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, or was brought to our attention from Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from the ancient of times. Wouldn't you agree that these prophecies are much more readily recognized and understood from our position looking back at the history of Christ and all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, as opposed to being in that day hearing, not by way of reading this every day, because you didn't have that access, but on occasion, some rabbi would read from the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, and perhaps he would read this passage and would cover over this prophetic word, and people like us would be sitting before them, listening to what was being said, and perhaps clueless to any word that God was giving, suggesting that one day, Messiah would come to set his people free. I suggest to you that in the days of Jesus' arrival, it was particularly challenging for people to realize that the word of God was being fulfilled. And only as it became very close at hand might they then begin to make a connection between what they had heard in all of their history And what was now taking place in their presence. But take note of this. In Luke chapter 2. In verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now... There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel that would come by way of Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, He went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Do you see how this happened? I want us to take note of this. That Simeon became aware of the fullness and fulfillment of the prophecy. How? Because the Spirit of God spoke into his life, telling him he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. While he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for an anticipated day that he had not yet known had arrived. He was waiting and had been waiting by faith, holding on that a time would come where God would console his people through a Messiah. And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, You will not die until you see the Lord's Christ. The Spirit of God was upon him, characteristic of his life and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not before he saw the Lord's Messiah and then moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit. How would this have happened? How could by way of coincidence this devout godly man just happen to arrive in the temple as Mary and Joseph, unknown to him, enter with a baby as would so many to have their child dedicated on the eighth day. And in the moment that they come in, he is made aware that this is the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, I am here. Moved by the Spirit, I have been foretold that I would not die until I see the Lord's Christ. Do you see the mechanism by which God moved for this individual To bring him into an awareness of the fulfillment of prophecy in his day. So the first advent sets precedent for anticipating the second advent. Christ came. Christ ascended. As you have seen him ascend in the clouds, so he will return a second advent. In the clouds. Through years and generations of waiting, wandering, sleeping sluggishly, complacent, perhaps indifferent, unbelieving, enduring, surviving, bending and adjusting to the difficulties, the injustices, the hardships, the unfairness, the loss, the government oppression, the violence, the inhumane treatment. Sounds like today, doesn't it? I'm referring to their day. There were recorded prophecies, sometimes read sometimes remembered, believed by some, disregarded probably by most, that served as markers to encourage hope and anticipation. While the historical landscape looks considerably different from today's global and national condition, there are similarities that cause us to be hopeful and to anticipate The return of the Messiah to reign as king and sovereign. Our Bibles are filled with closed and open prophecies and promises. Closed meaning a promise has been given and fulfilled, it's closed. Open meaning a prophecy has been given but is not yet fulfilled, it remains open. Ultimately yielding the coming of God's eternal kingdom, the fulfillment of his predetermined plan, and a new heaven and earth, free from sin, and its destructive consequence, death. In our present day, highly educated, biblically learned, theological scholars, those are titles, those are titles that were applied to people in our day who've given themselves to biblical study and research. So in our present day, highly educated, biblically learned theological scholars have invested years of intense study and research in order to secure for the church a proper understanding of eschatology, the study of death, judgment, and the final destiny of humankind. Hear how one scholarly work describes the dictionary of biblical prophecy and end times. It's described as a comprehensive reference tool designed to assist everyday people, that would be us, we're everyday people, to assist everyday people in understanding biblical prophecy. Based on solid scholarship, mind you, based on solid scholarship, it is targeted for those who truly desire to understand prophecy and the end times. The articles are based on solid scholarship, mind you, yet are clear and accessible to the lay reader, that's us, us people who don't know as much and haven't studied as much and probably will never really get a handle on all this, but for our benefit as the common people, the everyday people, and the lay readers, it's intended to bring illumination to even the most complicated issues. The dictionary also strives for a balanced presentation by laying out differing positions. Wait a minute. It's going to lay out differing positions among the highly scholarly who've invested many years of their life to be able to provide for us an understanding of what these prophecies are leading to? And yet there are differing positions? along with the strengths and weaknesses. So the dictionary is going to provide different positions and then identify from their perspective what are strong and what are weak positions while not pushing my, or I'm sorry, while not pushing any significant theological or interpretive agenda other than a firm commitment to seeking to understand the scriptures. Can you get a sense for where I'm going with this, what, what I'm learning from this, from people more learned than I am from people that have studied this much deeper and thoroughly than I ever will. In other words, educated theologians fully invested in the study of the end times have come to varying different conclusions after thoroughly studying the same Bible. And I'm just going to, I don't know if if you received as you came in this packet that Tammy helped me with, eschatological comparisons. I make that available to you to look at on your own, but I'm just going to highlight something that will kind of underscore my takeaway from looking at this. There are essentially four positions with regards to the millennium. The millennium being that agreed upon 1,000 years of time where there'll be peace on the earth under the reign of Christ. You have the dispensational premillennialist. You have the historic premillennialist. You have the post-millennialists, and you have the ah ah-millennialists, which means, ah, there is no millennia. (laughs) Okay, so you have four positions among the most scholarly biblical theologians who've invested time and years in coming to an understanding about what the prophecy is intended to tell us. I'm just wanting to touch on this a bit. Um, So, Dispensational premillennialism: Jesus came to earth bringing with him an offer of the kingdom to the Jews who rejected him. God then turned to dealing with the Gentiles, thus the church age, in a parenthesis sort. The rapture is the next event to occur in biblical prophecy. The signs of the end of the age, the birth of the nation of Israel, the revival of the Roman Empire found in the EEC, common market, the impending Russian-Arab invasion of Israel, all point to the immediacy of the secret return of Jesus for his church. The millennium is marked by a return to the Old Testament temple worship and sacrifice to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ. At the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment occurs, and Satan and all unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. There is the creation then of a new heaven and new earth. So, we have many respected scholarly theologians Starting with the Schofield Reference Bible, any of us still using Schofield Reference Bible as our main Bible to study from? That reference Bible holds to this position, as do John Walvard, Charles Ryrie, J. Dwight Pentecost. Popular dispensational pastors are Charles Swindell, Dave Hunt, Jack Van Empt, Charles Stanley, Chuck Smith, and this is espoused by the Dallas Theological Seminary. So, some great... Uh, credits given to this particular point of view. However, the historic pre when Jesus began his public ministry, the kingdom of God was manifest through his ministry. And upon his ascension into heaven and in the gift of the Spirit of Pentecost, the kingdom is present through the Spirit until the end of the age, which is marked by the return of Christ to earth in judgment. During the period immediately preceding the return of Christ, there's a great apostasy and tribulation. And after the return of Christ, there will be a period of a thousand years, a millennium. Satan will be down, bound, and the kingdom will be consummated, and then there'll be the creation of a new heaven and a new earth following uh, Armageddon. And that position is held by uh, George Ladd from Fuller Theological Summit, Walter Martin, uh, Greek scholars, German New Testament uh, specialists, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School holds to this position. So there's two out of the four, and there's substantial support for each of those positions. The post their position is, they affirm that the millennium is a period of 1,000 years of universal peace and righteousness in this world, which precedes the return of Jesus Christ. So before Christ returns, we have this millennium. Some see the millennial age as entirely future. Others argue that it may have already begun. That's within the same camp. There's division within the same camp. Postmillennialists see the millennial age as commencing at some point during the present age, our age, and as a period in which the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdoms of this world. So that's something they're saying we're going to see in our, in our day. And according to postmillennialists. There will be universal preaching and accepting of the gospel and a complete and total victory of the kingdom of God over the forces of Satan and unbelief. That's how the post-millennialists see this. So they all have some sense of millennial, millennium, but they just see it happening at different times. At the end of the millennial period, Satan will be released, the period of great tribulation and apostasy described, the battle of Armageddon. Then Christ returns in the judgment for the great white throne judgment, the resurrection occurs, and then the creation of a new heaven and earth. Many Reformed theologians hold to this. Charles Hodge, A. a. Hodge, B. B. Warfield, if you've been to seminary, those are all names and folks that you're familiar with. And then the final one, the ah-millennialism. Literally means no millennium. Uh, held largely by historically Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed Christianity, the note says, about two-thirds of the Christian family espouse an ah-millennial. Eschatology. Our millennialists insist that the promises made to the nation Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Christ and the Church during this age, which is the millennium. That is, the entire period of time between the two Advents, his first coming at Christmas, and the Advent yet to come, that is the millennium. The thousand years are therefore symbolic of this entire inner Advental age. Satan is bound by Christ's victory over him and the establishment of the kingdom of God via the preaching of the gospel and Satan is no longer free to deceive the nations. That's in our present day. Through the presence of Christ is reigning in heaven during this time with his martyrs uh, who come out of the great tribulation. And at the end of the millennial age, Christ returns in judgment of all men. The general resurrection occurs. Final judgment takes place. Do you see where I'm going? Do you, do you, are you are you following? My intention is to have you come to the place where you're going, oh my gosh, this is so confusing. How in the world can you wrap your mind around that? And interestingly enough, there are those who view the amillennialist, the supposed interpreting prophecy spiritually or non-literally, as those who reject and should be rejected because they label them as demonic and heretical. So, I mean, within the church, within this believing body of theologians who study the scriptures and have invested all this time in, into understanding what, what is this uh, that we're to anticipate, and, and how are we from this point of view to come to the place where we would be ready for the days ahead. I mean, how are we doing? Are, are you with me? Are you equally confused? Are you at a point of saying, I don't think I'll give a whole lot more time to trying to dissect all this prophecy that's recorded for us because these much more learned people in all the time that they've given, they're all coming up with different conclusions. And so how am I, Jim Park, going to come to know what may be true about this? I would suggest to you, that apart from the Holy Spirit at work in the believer's life, walking in the fullness of Spirit, having the Spirit of God informing your understanding and moving you at a particular point in time, you will not be recognizing the fullness of time coming true right before our eyes. We might be, be aware of the seasons, but not the day. And it will be by our reliance on the Spirit of God that we're not caught totally unaware. So, respect as we might these solid, scholarly, learned theologians, it would seem to me an everyday person, a lay reader, is not significantly helped or convincingly aided in arriving at a certain conclusion as to how God's providential plan for the world and mankind will subsequently unfold. Can you live with that? I mean, we oftentimes, I need to have an answer. Why? I'm suggesting to you, Jesus is your answer. Filled with his spirit is your means. And he will care for us who genuinely believe and stay in a devoted relationship with him. Our trust is in him. Not in my ability to dissect and discern all the particulars that are hidden hidden in these scriptures. Certain themes are reoccurring and shared by each position. There's a first and a second return of Christ, yes. The first return is what we celebrate at Christmas. We all agree with that. There's a final creation of a new heaven and earth. We understand that. There seems to be a thousand-year millennium, which may be literal or maybe it's symbolic. There's a binding and loosening of Satan and his final destruction. There's a terrible tribulation that may be experienced by all or by the state of Israel and the Jews and perhaps by Christians, perhaps not by Christians, perhaps raptured before, perhaps raptured mid, perhaps raptured afterwards. I'm not helping you (laughs) with understanding how we might anticipate other than God holds our future and his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we, staying under the covering and within the bonds of the church in relationship with Jesus Christ, we are safe and well cared for. Does that mean that you won't experience physical harm? Does that mean that you won't undergo persecution? Does that mean that you won't go hungry? Does that don't mean that your power won't uh, go out? Does that mean that you won't have heat in your home? I don't think it guarantees any of that. That's an unrealistic expectation for what I see described in the scriptures as to the way things are going to be in the world. And I'm not here to encourage us, get comfortable. Turn the heat up. The heat will be turned up, but it will not be for the sake of comfort. It will be to drive us to our knees and to cry out to God for more and to ask for the grace that I would not fail Him or fall back from following after Him because in my flesh I am inclined to do that. Oh, but for the grace of God we will stand. We will endure. We will persevere. We will give up our lives by the grace given by God. Confusing, diverse opinions, a lack of clarity. Why has God left this second advent so equally perplexing as the first? There are numerous indications and prophecies that speak of these end times. Turn with me to Matthew 23. The end of 23. Starting in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will declare and deceive many. You will hear, so one thing, many will come to deceive. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed for such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Then nations will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and even hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Moving down to 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled. To verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. Verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming out of the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near, right at the door. Verse 36. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42, Therefore, There has never been a time in history when prophecies were more aligned with human events. Could we be living in the end times? So let's just think about the day we live in. Young people who one day will become parents and perhaps have children, should your generations see the break of day. We certainly are aware of the rapid, radical, alarming changes taking place in our nation. Infidelity, adultery, divorce, remarriage, hooking up, fornication, sexual perversions, pornography, pedophilia, sex transformations, sexual mutilation, hormone blockers, sex with minors, gender choice and identity, violence, murders, mass shootings, suicides, abortions, and advanced stages of pregnancy government involvement, government control during COVID-19, mandates for isolation, masking, vaccinations, boosters, forced compliance, loss of jobs and livelihood, screening with vac cards, permissions and restrictions regarding travel, churches and worship centers closed, media bias, misinformation, manipulation, restrictions on free speech. In this day, What is it you anticipate? Peace? Tranquility? Calm? Casual? Normal? Acquiring wealth, security for retirement, vacations on the beach, abundance of material possessions. What are we anticipating? What should we anticipate based on the fig tree? What are the signs of this present season? Return to normal, usual, ordinary, picnics in the park, or a reckless, unsettling, irrational, disturbing events following on the heels of COVID-19 isolation, government aid, closed businesses, Black Lives Matter, rage, violence, anger, fires, destruction? So what can we do? What should we do? What will we do? What must we do to ready ourselves? To be equipped to persevere, endure, and stand. Remember the day of 9-11? Where you were, what you saw, In the moment of the attacks on 9-11, as I watched events unfold from my office at VMI, my thoughts anticipated a massive attack on our nation focused on destroying our national will and resolve by conducting multiple attacks on numerous cities, power supplies, water sources, widespread, coordinated attacks. First one, Then another, then another, my sense was there is a plan to take down the will of our nation by targeting us in such a way that our people just give up and concede. Testing our will, which is not the will we used to have in our nation. So in that moment, as I anticipated yet more to happen, with my daughter and my son away from our home, I reached out to them with a warning and urgent advice. I don't know to what extent we are in jeopardy or what threat you may personally be exposed to. So I implore you, reach out to Jesus, grasp a hold of him, turn to him with all your might and put your full trust in him. End times response. In these dark, ominous days, many will rely on their own strength for survival. Let's store up food. Let's gather water supplies. Let's get extra clothes, propane, generators, get our fortifications ready to survive and outlast the threat. I'm not saying don't do that. You do as the Spirit of God leads you to. But I am aware of scriptures which typically we apply in our present day that say don't come be concerned don't be concerned about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat your father is mindful of all these things seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you I've always just understood that scripture to be an encouragement in this present comfortable day Perhaps its intent is in the day of peril and great difficulty when our food is threatened, when our homes are under siege, when our livelihood is taken from us, and when we are identified as they're one of them. They're not yielding to the system, they're not bowing the knee. Will we stand firm to the end? I want to close with this passage from 2 Peter. Yes, 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 9 of chapter 3, 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard. Be awake, be alert, be alive, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawlessness and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So I close with this question for each and every one of us. Have you given yourself to Jesus Christ? And if your answer is yes, give yourself more, unreservedly, without holding back. Give him all you are. And maybe more importantly, give him all you aren't. Join me in crying out to God to save us. Set us apart to be his holy, upright, blameless followers without spot, wrinkle, or stain. Free from the influences of this world. Free from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I need you people. If I'm to stand and I'm to be free of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which hooks me, I need you, and you need one another, and we need to be prepared to stand and recognize the truth. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ, and he is returning by what sequence of events we don't know, but my sense is we need to be prepared for increased difficult times, and we need to get a grip a hold on Christ until we're assured that he has gripped and is holding us and we will not be plucked out. Come what may, let us be determined by God's grace to be his people and to do his will. So I want you to give consideration If we were to leave this place as by way of a normal church Sunday morning, we are in peril. If in this day, as we see these things unfolding around us, we are not recognizing the preface that COVID 19 brought upon us to get us ready for what's about to take place in our generation. We need ears to hear. We need eyes to see. We need to give ourselves wholly to the Savior. Have we been lukewarm? Have we grown complacent? Are we not aware? Should we repent? Should we say, oh God, I'm not the man, the person I need to be in relationship with you. The world has its grip on me. The world draws me and attracts me and titillates my senses, urges me to put space between you and those things that are close at hand. I repent of the sins in my flesh. The old nature within me that still gravitates toward things other than you. O blood of Jesus shed for me. Cleanse me of my sin. as we bring this last song of worship you can go to your knees at your chair you can come to the altar to pray but please receive the admonition let nothing stand between you and your Savior make a straight path level ground nothing hindering clear road to Christ.